truly at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 132 of Dogcast Radio. In this show, we have an interview with a family whose love of dogs led them to write a book. We just kept coming back to the story. We just liked the story so much and we said, you know, we really ought to write that down. Plus, we have the Dogcast Radio news, news of Dogs for the Disabled's Big Dogs Breakfast and an article about the TV show that caused a storm in the UK by offering a dog as a competition prize. But before all that, we have a breed profile of the ever-popular Golden Retriever. Mariel Hazelden has had Goldens in her life since she was born, and now she breeds them. So what are Golden Retrievers like to live with? Oh, they're absolutely delightful, but I would say that, wouldn't I? (laughs) You would. (laughs) Um, I have had them all my life. There was one at my cradle because um, although it wasn't unusual in the 1950s for mothers to have their babies at home, my mother would not leave her 12-year-old because she pined so terribly for my mother if she was separated from her. So I'm the oldest of four daughters, and mother did not have an easy time, but she had me at home because she wouldn't leave her old 12-year-old golden retriever. So (laughs) they've they've been there literally Mm. the whole of my life. Um, and she was, um, she lived to be two weeks short of her 14th birthday. Um, and she was just very devoted to my mother. And it's really ironic because the dark one that came back to live with me when mum died, also given the same name, Rain, R-A-Y-N-E, she um, was equally devoted to my mother. And I'm a very poor substitute and I'm well aware of it. (laughs) But she's now very clingy with me. Um, but not to the extent that she won't be nice to other people, mm. but you, she obviously it would like to have been a one-man dog, which is fairly unusual. Mm. They do normally get on. That's why they make good family pets, because they're normally good with everything and everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, they're sort of not, as you said, they're not a one-man dog. They're just like, oh, we'll go for normally. You, yeah. But yeah. you do, you see, I am, I am a one-person family, so yeah. apart from the dogs. So I am their pack leader. Um, if I'm putting it in those terms, which is not how I normally describe it. So they all look to me for everything. Mm. Um, They're confident enough when they're out and about, not that they have to look to me all the time. Yeah. Um, Hence Grian being naughty on occasion. (laughs) Um, And Aoife being a little thug. But Aoife is just, if you saw Aoife, you would know what I mean. She is up to size for the breed standard, but she seems small, but she's very businesslike. She's stocky. She's not really like the others who are more the old lines, bigger, uh, mm. taller golden retrievers. And, and golden golden retrievers, that's really what mine are known for. Um, my green is my palest, and she is what I would call mid-gold. Mm. Um, but the, the breed standard says any shade of gold or cream, but not mahogany nor red. Few white yeah. hairs permissible on the chest. And um, rain is almost the forbidden mahogany, <laughs> and green is mid-gold. Um, mm. Some would call her dark cream, I suppose, but I think mid-gold is probably... Uh, I've never had anything really pale. I've had a couple of grey old ladies who were dark to start with, but have gone really white. Mm. Um, but, you know, the only way you can tell that a gold, some golden retrievers um, aren't white is if you stand them against the snowbank and then you'll see that they're really really pale cream yeah oh. um, they, they are they always strike me as a very glamorous dog I always think we, we met um, one particularly when I was doing ring craft with Buddy and she was gorgeous and I always think if Goldie Horn was a dog she would be a golden retriever because they are glamorous <laughs> yeah the thing is uh, glamorous I think is is fine um, elegant isn't a word that should be used really for a golden <laughs> retriever. Um, you know, the, the biggest problem I've got these days, I think, is that they're getting longer and longer and shorter on the legs. And you do see some around these days that kind of look like clumber spaniels. Mm. Um, and one thing, and I think a lot of it is, is a, an interpretation of the breed standard um, without realizing what they were bred for. The um, being bred as working gun dogs originally um, in the rough coastal waters um, in Scotland um, because they shot duck, but they needed to get them out of the coastal waters and they needed um, a, a dog that was going to be strong enough. 
mm-hmm. um, to cope with it. And um, I mean, there are lots of stories about how golden retrievers came to be. Um, you know, I grew up with the, the myth or the legend of the circus troupe, but it's not that was not the case at all. Um, it was Lord Tweedmouth on his estate in Scotland, uh, which is called Gushigan, and he um, mated a tweed water spaniel to a, uh, I'm just trying to remember what it was. It was a, a yellow wavy-coated retriever. Mostly they were black, but this was a yellow one. Hmm. And um, there, there was a, an only, he was a, the dog that he used was an only pup, um, a yellow pup. And um, they produced, that, that coupling produced four yellow puppies. And um, pretty much from then, everything's descended. Um, so no circus troupe, I'm afraid. <laughs> and we only really know this because Lord Tudnath kept very meticulous stud records. Mm. And um, I mean, I only glance around the history, but they were really bred as as dual um, purpose, you know, swimming and um, and retrieving um, in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. So, so with with that sort of um, hunting background, yeah. Um, what are that? What's training like with them? Are they fairly biddable, or you know, yes. what's it like? Yeah, um, it's very rare that you get one that isn't. Um, I have to say that very occasionally um, I get one who looks at me. It's almost the canine two fingers. <laughs> she'll stand there and she'll say, "What's in it for me?" Mm. Um, but I train mine with a whistle. Mm. As baby puppies, three short blasts on the whistle, and they know to come to me wherever they are. And it's brilliant because I don't have any worries about letting them off the lead um, in a public place as as little ones because they know that if they come back to me, chances are there'll be a treat in the pocket. They're very Mm -hmm. foodies, (laughs) food-orientated. You do occasionally get one that isn't so food-orientated. But again, mostly they love their owners so much um, that they just want to please. And this this is the overriding thing, I think, is that a golden retriever wants to please. Um, my father, we have a lovely story in, in our family about my father, they were his working gun dog of choice. Hmm. And a lot of his friends up on the grass moors used to say to him things like, oh, Miles, you need a Labrador. You know, look how quick my Labrador is at bringing back. And my father, this one particular occasion, which is sort of stuck in the family legend, um, they'd been retrieving and there was a big hedge. And the birds had fallen the other side. So my father's shooting companion sent his Labrador out. It went straight through the hedge. It came back exactly the same way. It had prickly bits all over it. The birds ripped and feathers everywhere. Mm. And my father had sent his golden retriever out for a, a retrieve in the same area. And the dog had, had taken longer because she had looked for a space in the hedge and gone through it. Mm. And she'd come back the same way. And my father apparently said to his shooting companion, no, I'll stick with my golden retrievers. <laughs> because if you look at the bird that yours has brought back and you look at the one that mine's brought back, um, mine's used her brain to work out the best way to do it. Yeah. And um, I think my father also appreciated that they, they're slightly less in your face uh, as a general rule. Um, I mean, you know, because you've got a Labrador, yes. that they can be pretty boisterous. <laughs> yes. That's yeah. not to say golden retrievers can't be boisterous, but um, whereas a golden retriever, uh, a, a Labrador might shoot straight into something, oh, yes, you know, I'm going to do this now with wild enthusiasm, mm. um, <laughs> golden retriever might think about it a little bit first and mm. might decide. Not caution exactly in the sense of being a wimp, but yeah. it would think, is this really the best use of my time? Yes. Um, and so that, that's, that's the basic difference. I think my father would have seen it. Mm. And they, he certainly had had them since the 1930s. And, um, you know, they were, just, they were just family pets. We grew up with them. As I said, there was one um, at my cradle. We've always had at least one. And I've now got five of them. So. <laughs> People do become often devoted to a breed, don't they? And it suits Absolutely. them. And, and that's, you know, I mean, the other, the other breed that you notably find it with are sort of German shepherds. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And people do just say, that's, I'd never have a different dog, you know. No, well, I mean, I, I don't think I would want, um, we've got our routine, um, me and my girls. Mm. And um, I don't think I would want, another breed because I might have to get used to a different way of doing things and I am not adventurous enough or (laughs) ambitious enough Um, we do find there are people who go into another breed because there are so many golden retrievers in the show ring they can't win with them Um, and I would never do that because actually I don't really care what mine do on the occasions when they are shown 
Um, they are my family pets. Mm. They are companions, first and foremost. When we have a litter, almost all the puppies go to homes where they have a prospect of a long and happy uh, relationship mm. with their new owners. And um, my mother's first litter was in 1976, and I can't tell you exactly how many litters we've had over the years that have intervened, but we have only ever had to rehome one puppy because mm. of the, we do our homework before they go yeah. into their new homes. Mm. And hers was a completely genuine reason. The owners had suddenly been told for his work he was to go to Bermuda. She, the puppy was nine months old, and she really didn't feel, the wife didn't feel, that it would be fair to take her to a country where it was hot and humid. Yeah. yeah. So she, um, I picked her up. Um, they didn't live too far away. She came back to me. I took her straight to the vet to be microchipped, and she went to live with my uh, a friend of my mother's. And she is now living the life of Riley up in the Lake District. She's 12 years old. The mm. people who had her came back to me for another puppy in 2006. Um, and I do find that happens quite a lot. Mm. People who've had a puppy from me will come back, presumably, because they're happy with the one they've had before, you know. That... You've converted them to golden people, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, because to be honest with you, um, if they don't come to me telling me exactly why they think a golden retriever is the dog for them, they probably won't even get through the door. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm quite strict about it. And the, the, the Kennel Club Assured Breeder Scheme makes me laugh because they, they say that in the puppy pack, you have to include characteristics of the breed. And I'm thinking, you just don't get it, because if people couldn't tell me that they knew what they were getting yeah. or hadn't asked the right questions, they wouldn't be getting a golden retriever, mm. Mm. Uh, or at least not from me, and they would already know the characteristics of the breed because they would have done their homework. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that, you know, that's pretty much how I look at it. Yeah. But um, I never seemed to have a problem finding the right homes for my puppies. The only litter I ever did was the one where there were nine dog puppies and only the one bitch. Mm, and lot, um, it? that, it was a lot. And, but I kept one dog till he was um, 11 and a half weeks. They normally go at seven weeks. And I kept um, the dog that I was most bonded with until he was 14 weeks because the right homes didn't come along. Mm. I could have put them in homes well before that, but I wasn't happy. That the right the people were um, genuine, or they had the right attitude. And again, although I like to think of them as family pets, I also have a rule that only one child under six in the family for a puppy, hmm. because if you've got more than one child under six, preschoolers, taking on another puppy is like taking on another child. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I don't feel that you can do justice to a puppy if you've got two or three other children under six running around. Mm. And I've, you know, I've stuck to that and it's served me well. And I think that's probably why um, I don't get the problems with, you know, we've made a mistake or, you know, yeah. it, it's got a bad temperament, which is the thing that annoys me the most. And it does happen. I do hear people saying, oh, you know, I've had a puppy return because it's got a bad temperament. It won't be the dog that's got a bad temperament. It'll have been the child that will have provoked mm. it in some way and, um, you know, got a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. So try very hard for the temperament. That's my, for me, that's the most important thing. It has to be, doesn't it? More yeah, important than any of the health tests that they've brought in. Um, I had somebody the other day complain about a, a puppy that allegedly had bad hips. Um, and, you know, when you went into it, actually, the hip score was, was hardly over the, uh, the published breed average. And um, what it really was was that um, they had over-exercised this puppy mm. um, before it was nine months old, they had walked it with their four or five other dogs because, mm. oh, I haven't got time to do two separate walks a day. Yeah. And, you know, poor puppy. Mm. Its, its muscles and ligaments did not develop um, at a speed to support its frame. Mm. As I said, it, it wasn't that bad. Um, but they, they said, oh, you know, um, we, we, wanted, we wanted good hips. And I'm saying, well, there's no guarantees with living things. No. Um, you know, you just do the best you can. Um, I mean, I've bred, um, I, I put my nine, nine score with a 10, um, we got a puppy that had a score of seven, which is low, um, mm. in the first time we put them together. And, um, it was actually Eva's litter sister that got the seven. And I repeated the mating, never thinking for a moment that we wouldn't, we'd do anything wrong. And the bitch I kept turned out to have a hip, a hip missing, mm. as did one of the boys. And um, when I, the, the people who had the boy came to me and they said, you know, why did you do this? And I said, well, what more? Take, take the score sheets, which I've given you in the puppy pack, to the orthopedic surgeon and ask them what more I could have done. Mm. 
Mm. Um, because the answer is, I had mated two low-scoring dogs, and I had repeated a mating that had produced at least two low-scoring mm. puppies. Yeah. Um, it's living things, and there are no guarantees. You just do the best you can. Mm. Um, with, and I with... say to people, would you rather have um, a dog with perfect tips that bites you and runs away really fast? <laughs> yes. <you know? laughs> that's yeah. kind of what it seems like sometimes. Mm. I think a lot of people are um, completely obsessed with the, the hip-scoring scheme. And, I mean, the latest wheeze for Goldens really is elbows. And my vet doesn't believe that elbows are a problem in Golden Retrievers. Hmm. Um, and there's some talk about whether or not they should become a requirement for the Assured Breeder Scheme uh, rather than a recommendation, which they are at the moment. And um, I've talked to my vet about it long and hard because I'm um, a breed health representative of one of the Golden Retriever Clubs, hmm. and I'm expected to have an opinion on this on behalf of the club. And she said that she couldn't in all conscience advise her clients with Golden Retrievers that they want to breed from to have the elbows done because in the years that she's had golden retrievers, she grew up with them in Holland as well, which is quite nice. She must have about 500 on her books over the past 10 to 15 years. She said she's never seen a single case of elbow dysplasia in a golden retriever, but oh. quite a lot in Labradors. Yeah, yeah. So with, um, with that in mind, what sort of, if you're looking to get a golden retriever, what health problems should you be asking about? Right. Well, I think, um, first of all... From my point of view, eyes um, are top of the list. They've been the longest um, health scheme. They do the uh, Kennel Club uh, British Veterinary Association um, in conjunction with the Collie, uh, used to be with the Collies. Um, and that's the original scheme. Golden Retrievers are tested for, at the moment, uh, three things uh, routinely. One is hereditary cataracts. One is progressive retinal atrophy. Mm -hmm. and the other is multifocal retinal dysplasia, MRD. Now, MRD um, does not get put onto their registration, the puppy's registration certificates, but it is put onto the open register at the Kennel Club, and there's been a lot of um, discussion over the years since this happened um, about whether or not any golden retriever has ever gone blind from it, um, if it is truly hereditary. There are all sorts of um, things said about it. Now, from my point of view, hereditary cataracts, I'm, I'm sure we have made a lot of progress on that. They are currently looking for a DNA marker for um, progressive retinal atrophy 1 in golden retrievers. Um, and some research is being done on that, really to ascertain at the moment if it is a problem. Hmm. But um, So my girls have their eyes tested um, every year, certainly if they're being bred from um, hereditary cataracts. PRA, progressive retinal atrophy, and MRD. Um, MRD, I don't know what I would do if I ever had one that showed signs of it because it's not a notifiable one. Um, it just goes on the open register. But um, from my point of view, I would never breed from hereditary cataracts or if I knew I had a, an affected PRA. Mm. Um, and then we come to HIPS, which were the next um, health scheme to be introduced. Um, Allegedly, the breed standard, the, the, the breed um, average has come down, but I maintain that if every golden retriever in the country had its hips x-rayed and scored, the 15, 16, 17, or 19 average, whoever you believe at the moment, hmm. would probably be somewhere in the 30s or 40s. Mm. Um, and just because a golden retriever has a high score does not mean it's doomed to a life as a cripple. Hmm. My longest living golden retriever um, bought in um, a long time ago from a father with zero zero, which is the lowest you could get and hmm. virtually impossible these days in goldens to find. And a mother with a breeder's letter, which was no more than nine and no more than five on one side, um, had a little brother with six and a little sister with six or seven. She came back at 30, 33, a total of 63. Okay. Now, in those days... Um, we, we actually, we bred from her before we had her hips scored and we sent her for hip scoring with her daughter. She, that's when we discovered she had 63. We had no idea at mm -hmm. all. And her daughter came back at 43, so we'd gone in the right direction. Yeah. She had a litter to a dog with a score of 10 and produced an 8, a 10 and a 21. Mm -hmm. We bred from the 10 to a 10 and we got a 21 again. 
So um, the argument, I think, uh, about this is people say, oh, well, if they come back with a high score, they're not going to be in the breeding program, and so it doesn't matter what the average is. But I think it all needs to be looked at in, in the whole. And my certainly my um, one that with a score of 63, she lived to be 15. She worked until she was 10, so mm-hmm. no problems yeah. there. Loved water. She walked until the day she died, including climbing steps to get into the garden because the house we lived in, you had to go up six or seven steps, quite steep steps, mm-hmm. to get into the garden and never had a day's lameness in her life. It wasn't, mm-hmm. her, lame, it wasn't her back legs that carried her off. Yeah. It was old age, you know. Oh, yeah. um, and I say to people, and I use this as an example for people who come to me saying, oh, you know, my score of 25, it's going to have an awful life. And the answer is no, it's not. You know, that is, mm. that is silly. Um, I would never, ever breed from any animal um, that had not had its hips scored. I would never use a, dog, a stud dog who didn't have his hips scored. But I would not throw the baby out with the bathwater because mm. I think you run the risk of losing some of the other lovely characteristics. Um, when, you know, I have bred from a 43 and got a 10. Yeah. Yeah, it does need more investigation, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure that there are people who have got their hip scores down. And actually, touch wood, so have I. Um, You know, from that um, bitch with the nine put to a ten, I have got under my roof now a 12 and a 14, which Mm -hmm. is below the breed average. Um, I tell people I think the, the published breed average is somewhere around it, around 19. Mm-hmm. They tell me the rolling three-year breed average is down to 15, but it's probably only been brought down to 15 because not everybody is sending up their bad plates these days. Yeah. Hence the argument that, well, if they're not sending up the plates and they're not being scored, then they're out of the breeding program anyway. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. think it's giving a false... Um, it's giving false hope to people with, with um, golden retrievers who might have a slightly higher score. Um, maybe I've just been lucky. But again, I look at pedigrees. I'm far more concerned about eyes. And actually, I'm far more concerned about epilepsy because there are some lines that are known to carry it. Um, and I think I could live with a dog with bad hips or not perfect hips better than I could live with a dog that had to have drugs for epilepsy every day. Mm-hmm. And, and my old line, my original line which died out uh, about 10 years ago with my sister's bitch, who was the last of the line. Um, they, they did have epilepsy. They carried it. So the fact mm-hmm. that it died out was a, a relief to me. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they sound like quite an active breed. How much exercise <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do they need? And, you know, the other thing is, do they have to have swimming to be happy? No. 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 I mean, most of them love it. Um, I used to take my, um, I used to rotate which of mine came with me down to a friend of mine who swims hers every week. And we used, I used to go down on a Saturday and take one or two of mine. Um, the old lady that, that, um, that died, the one, uh, mother of my oldest now, she absolutely loved swimming. And the, the last pictures I've got of her are in the swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And that was what sort of alerted us to the fact there was a problem because we couldn't get her, her float coat, the girth on her float coat done up the two days before she died. And she had a tumor which had, um, uh, she was bleeding out inside. It had ruptured. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really didn't know. And that's how stoic they are. Mm, they, yeah. uh, you know, they will never let on that there's anything wrong. If they do, then you know that they really are in discomfort. Mm. Uh, anyway, I digress. Um, no, they don't. They don't need to swim. Most of them love it. But um, Rain, who's the one that came back to me when Mum died, um, she would die rather than go swimming. <laughs> um, she really does not want to get wet. Yeah. And her mother, who is the old lady, I have a lovely picture of her with one of her daughters, the only time we've ever persuaded her to go into this <laughs> swimming pool. And she's splashing around in there, and she got out, and she shook herself off, and she said, I was absolutely right. I don't walk in puddles. I walk around puddles, and I'm never going swimming again. And I have this beautiful picture on our website of her with Grania, her, her youngest daughter, um, in this swimming pool. And she's maintained her dignity, bless her, whilst Grania is splashing around her, but she never, ever wanted to go in again. And I've never mm. forced the issue. Um, I don't have any now that actually would choose to swim. Mm. I'm, I'm sure that they would if they had to. Um, Grian has been swimming, and she knows exactly what's involved. 
but again, um, where where I walk them, they don't. There isn't access to water, or they, actually, it's a pond where fishermen go, and I don't want to run the risk of anything like hooks being left around or or what have you. Um, so we don't go up the lane as far as the fishing pond. Um, but you know, they're perfectly happy not to have water. Um, I'm happy for them to to paddle in the in the stream um, that we go over to get to the walk. Um, but again, it's quite near the road, so by then they're normally on the lead. Yeah, I think I guess you've made some some really useful points in in, in um, demonstrating how different some of your dogs have been from you know each other. In, oh yeah, and that's something that we need to say that you know this is um, you know we're giving an overview, but each dog yeah. is an individual, isn't it? Every single one is individual. I mean, I could tell you the likes and dislikes of all of mine. Um, they've all got their funny little characteristics. Mm. Um, the old lady and the the next oldest, Rain, they sleep with me. You know, <laughs> not really what they're supposed to do, but they do. Um, and as a result, they are less likely to try and get my attention in the evenings mm. because they know that they get it at night. Yeah. Um, and when we sit watching telly, they, they're very good when, I, when I'm eating. If I have my supper on a train in front of the television, they never beg. They lie down quietly, but they just seem to have this knack when the knife and fork or the spoon go down, <laughs> and they then look at you. And I've yes. got Gray and Gray and the youngest draped on the back of the sofa. I know this sounds terrible. Your, your listeners are going to be absolutely appalled, but um, believe me, they do know how to behave if they have to. I have Gray and draped around my shoulders, mm. and Neve is on the other end of the sofa. Eva doing her own thing as usual, and the others on the other side of the room. Um, but they don't beg while I'm eating, but, and I've never taught mm. them not to. They just know this is Mum's food; it's not my food. Yeah, yeah. Do you um, know you saying that? I think there's the, the, there's probably a book in what we really get up to with our dogs because um, I did an interview with Debbie Connolly recently and she was saying one of her friends is in obedience Um, and she didn't name any names but her dogs sleep on her bed and she has to say no they don't they don't you know she has to fib and you think you know we we all have these little things we let them get away with I think there's a book in that (laughs) but you know if I ever have to go and give a talk to children about um, how you should look after your pets one of the things I have to tell them is that every pet needs its own bed. Mine have got their own beds, by the way. Every dog has its own bed, somewhere where it can go and it wants to be quiet, where it yes. sleeps, you know, and all the rest of it. And my sister has seen me give talks and she's chucking away in the corner of the room <laughs> saying, you look like a real hypocrite, you know. And I said, well, you know, it's do as I say, not as I do. Yes, you know? yeah. um, I guess and, the thing is, once you've put those rules in place and they know oh, that they, they can. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, these two oldies, I reckon they've earned a few privileges. Yes. Um, you know, the old one um, has, she's given me four lovely, if not huge, litters mm. um, over the years. And she's now our longest living um, homebred golden retriever. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that um, she deserves a bit of luxury. And they, she and, and Rain, they sleep, um, they, they sleep in one room during the day when I'm out. The other three are in the kitchen. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, they have their routine. They know when we get up, we have breakfast. They sleep until I come home at lunchtime and let them mm. out um, in the garden. And um, sometimes the old lady is so fast asleep that she doesn't even realize everybody else has gone out. <laughs> um, I normally, and she's deaf now, bless her. So she'll hear a high-pitched whistle and she'll hear a clap. So I'm standing there whistling and clapping. And finally, she looks up and says, oh, is it that time already? And off she goes. And um, in fact, when I came home this evening, she was still fast asleep in the bed. Um, Mm. Although, you know, she'd been out at lunchtime just the same. And um, but my mother, I I do what my mother did. My mother only gave them one long walk a day Mm. when they were old enough. When they were puppies, they got toddled around the block um, for no more than 10 minutes. But when they were old enough to go on the proper walk, and she she took them out for 40 minutes to an hour, mm. um, which is actually ample, uh, particularly if you've got a garden, um, which is, well, I mean, we're, we're lucky. We have quite a big garden. And we've also, they exercise each other in that garden. They'll play yes. roughly and they'll <laughs> run around. Um, so, uh, which is just as well, because, you know, if you work full time in the winter, it's very, very difficult to get decent exercise in. Yes. Um, yeah. Our village has no street lighting. And um, I wouldn't feel happy letting them off the lead in the field to have a run around in the dark. Mm. Um, And I just think, you know, you have to, it's all right for people to say straight down the line, they need two walks a day, they need to do this, they need to do that. But I think um, my vet says, 
they're healthy, I never see them. You know, yeah. and I find that quite yeah. interesting. Mm. Um, and um, she would certainly not say that mine are in anything other than hard, good hard condition. So. Yeah. It, it's all about what, what works for you and your dogs. Isn't yes, it? and also you need to be aware that um, as long as you um, treat them correctly, then they, will, they won't have the problems that people think they will have. I haven't put that very well. But, you know, people, they're so down the line, they need to be fed this, they need to be fed that, uh, mm. you must do this and you must do that. But um, if anyone came into my house now, apart from the fact they all need a bit of a groom, um, <laughs> nobody would say they were anything other than lovely, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I tell people they have a fairly hedonistic lifestyle, which I think is, is quite true. Mm. Um, but they're happy and they're healthy and mm. they are loved. And yeah. there are so many dogs that aren't. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. and uh, the other thing I think uh, also, uh, I see quite a lot of dogs that are overweight. Yes. And um, my girls, uh, none of them is overweight. Mm, and that's a big I work. Thing, isn't it? I do work quite hard on that. I have to say, mm, but mm. on the other hand, um, you can have as many problems from being underweight that, as yeah. you can from being overweight. It's mm. all a question of balance, isn't it? I think. And it's so much easier to do with your dog than with yourself. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. I've been at Weight Watchers for six months now. I did lose two stone. Got another two stone. Oh, well done. <laughs> she loves her dogs, doesn't she? You can find out more about Meriel and her dogs at Overdean Golden Retrievers via the link on the Dogcast Radio site. And we also have a link to the Golden Retriever Club in both the UK and the US. Golden Retrievers are not bred to be guard dogs, and considering the size of their hearts and their irrepressible joy in life, they are less likely to bite than to bark. Less likely to bark than to lick a hand in greeting. In spite of their size, they think they are lap dogs. And in spite of being dogs, they think they are also human. And nearly every human they meet is judged to have the potential to be a boon companion who might at any moment cry, let's go, and lead them on a great adventure. Dean Kuntz. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. Hello and welcome to the Dogcast Radio News Desk. I'm Nick. And I'm Kate. This may not come as a surprise to many dog owners, but apparently we choose dogs which reflect our personalities. Extroverts are more likely to be drawn to a German Shepherd, a Border Collie or a Bulldog, while those who opt for a Greyhound or a Beagle tend to be emotionally stable. Those with toy breeds such as Chihuahuas or Pekingese are able to embrace change. The Kennel Club assisted the research which was done by Bath Spa University and the findings were presented at the British Psychological Society's annual conference in London. The study doesn't take into account those who take on rescue dogs with little or no knowledge of the dog's breed or mix. And, of course, what about those who live with more than one breed? Maybe they're multifaceted characters or just plain confused. Something that you won't like, whatever breed you live with, is dog flipping. This is a practice that is emerging in the dog world, and it's when a person buys or adopts a dog and then immediately sells the dog on to make a profit. Some owners trying to rehome a dog have offered their dogs free to a good home, only to see them advertised for sale and sold to the highest bidder, with no thought for their welfare. So how do you avoid falling prey to dog flipping? Well, the Atlanta Humane Society advises, if you can no longer keep your dog, take it to a shelter rather than advertising it in a newspaper or online. Then you can be sure that the dog will be properly taken care of and not exploited just to make money. In the UK, there was huge speculation that the microchipping of dogs was about to be made compulsory. But in the end, the announcement from DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, has revealed that they are seeking input on how to introduce more comprehensive microchipping of dogs. The real crux of the announcement was an attempt to confront the issue of dangerous dogs, with the Dangerous Dogs Act being extended to cover private property. DEFRA highlighted that this will help protect postal workers delivering posts to homes. Apparently around 4,000 of them suffer dog attacks each year. You can read the full statement on the Dogcast Radio site, along with the responses of many charities and other organisations in the UK. Meanwhile, in the USA, dogs have got their own television station. 
Dog TV was launched in California earlier this year, and it's now available online across America. The advertising-free content is aimed at stay-at-home dogs and has been scientifically tailored for canine viewers, with even the sound, colors, and camera angles adjusted to make them as appealing as possible to dogs. The Humane Society in Escondido, California, has been showing dog TV to the dogs in their shelter, and they have seen a marked improvement in the dogs. To find out more, check out dogtv.com, or for a sneak preview, visit their YouTube channel. And finally, in Florida, a man who left his dog in a hot car had cause to regret it. When police officers noticed the dog was in the car, panting and breathing heavily, they broke in to free it. At that point, they discovered 478.3 grams, or 16.87 ounces, of marijuana, and the dog's owner was charged with possession with intent to sell, possession of drug paraphernalia, and, of course, animal cruelty. And that's all from us on the Dogcast Radio News Desk. Goodbye. Surely, if God could look like something of this world that we could all see and relate to, it would more than likely be a golden retriever. Deborah Marlin Do you welcome opportunities to celebrate how much our dogs mean to us? Well, if so, like me, you'll love Bark Night. It's a book that reminds us how lucky we are to have our dogs in our lives, and I spoke to co-author Dan McConnell about the book. But he wasn't alone, because Bark Night is very much a family project. Yes, absolutely. I'm joined here by my wife, Meg, and our four children, Kelly, 17, Brian, 15, Kevin, 13, and our youngest, Matthew, 11. If if we sort of start with how the book came about in the first place, because I think that's a really lovely story, because sometimes when, when you guys have dinner together, you just do wordplay, don't you? So tell me sort of how uh, Bark Night came about. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We, we do try to uh, engage the kids, and really it was more or less out of, out of uh, necessity. We, we were out to dinner, um, and when the kids are young, you know how it can be difficult to keep them seated and, and engaged. So um, we... Uh, you know, as a family, we would play games just to keep everyone focused on, you know, uh, not getting up or, or so forth. So there's one particular time in, I think it was around 2004. So Matthew um, was our youngest at four. So we would have been four, six, eight, and ten years old, the mm. kids, which can be a d- disaster for <laughs> people who you're sitting next to. And yes. They're very sensitive. <laughs> so uh, my wife and I, uh, we... we uh, um, we were at a local pizzeria uh, just down the street, and uh, we were sitting in a booth, and <clears throat> I could tell that the kids were getting a little rambunctious, so um, we decided to play a word game, and um, the game was to basically take two unrelated words and put them together and tell a story about them. So uh, we took turns doing that, and we did a couple of words, but then when the two words bark and night were put together, it didn't take more than 15 minutes for us to uh, come up with the story, which we later called The Legend of Bark Knight. Yeah, that, that's incredible. I mean, Matthew, you're the, like, you're the youngest. Can you remember that still? Can you remember that, Matthew? Not really. No? But you remember writing the book, right? Yeah. So it, it actually was great because we, we had a good laugh and, and we had a nice, you know, warm feeling that we actually came up with a, a story. But uh, at the moment, that was really not our main goal. We were just trying to keep everybody quiet yes. and not, you know, disturbing anybody next to us, which I'm happy to say we were also successful in doing. Yeah, yeah. So, because I'm fascinated, because I think our dogs and our pets um, do inspire us to sort of, maybe it comes from sort of trying to get closer to them and think, you know, get hold of what they're thinking, but they definitely inspire creativity. So, how did you get from having this lovely story to actually... Uh, bringing it out in a book? It's, it's a great question, and, and uh, I, I think for us, we just kept coming back to the story. We just liked the story so much, and we said, you know, we really ought to write that down. And we would tell people this, the story we came up with, and they would say, you know, you really ought to write that down. And so one day, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, this, this is kind of a neat idea. How hard is it to kind of publish a book? So I, I went online, and uh, I searched for kind of self-publishers, and I, I noticed that um, Amazon, uh, you know, the, the, the online, at the time, it was more or less a bookseller, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they they owned a uh, an online uh, publishing company, and uh, so I, I looked around. I saw other ones that were out there, and they seemed to be the the, uh, the easiest to work with. And so I said to my wife, I said, "This this really is something we could do if we wanted to put our minds to it." And uh, so we did some more research, and I just you know I, for whatever reason the story was just so compelling that really inspired us to take the next step. And uh, so we. We uh, engaged, uh, the organization was called Book Surge. They, they now are called Create Space, but at the time they were called Book Surge. And uh, it was, they were very easy to work with. Um, and I think because they were so easy to work with, and um, that it enabled us to really follow through on the, on the idea of uh, not just putting pen to paper, but ultimately to publishing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. So um, you obviously all enjoy the story. So who'd like to tell me something about what the story is about? Sure. Kelly, what is the story about? Well, first it talks about how um, it wasn't always how it was today, like man's best friend. It was more along the lines of dogs were, they kind of forgot that dogs were great and like they're so important in their life. So they just treated them badly and it wasn't a good time for dogs or all pets. And eventually, one dog, Salty, got away. He was on the boat. They um, threw him off because he had bread, and they like he couldn't eat off the table. Mm. He um, was swimming, and eventually, he arrives at the island of Lore, and it is just an, uh, an island, and it's he's free, but he's not exactly happy just because he knows how all the other dogs are feeling back home. So. Two other dogs arrive at the island, and he tells them, he whispers a word into their ear, which eventually find out is Bark Night, and he tells them to go to all the corners of the world and tell the other dogs to come to the island on this one specific night, which is Bark Night, which is either the the first full moon after Thanksgiving, and after Halloween, and um, if it's on Halloween, then there's something called Baby Bark Night. Right. So it's the... All the dogs arrive at the island, and um, after they get there, they all proceed to yell Bark Night together, and they don't feel any different, so then they just they get told to swim back, and as soon as they go back, the humans were wondering where they were, they realized that they were important, they fed them, they invited them into their homes, and that's how um, God became man's best friend. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Brian, um, do you have a favourite part of the book? I do have a favourite part of the book. It is in the middle of the book about where Saucy is explaining his plan to the other dogs because it's a great illustration. And I also love how it's showing how dogs are so much like humans, how they plan out stuff, which is a thing we do all the time. Yeah, yeah. You enjoy spending time with your dog, Lucy? Yes. She, uh, she seems to like it more than I do. <laughs> she likes to lie down on my feet when I'm doing my homework. Or sometimes <laughs> go over to the sink to wash my hands. She lies down and pretty much blocks me in there, so I have to tell her that I have to leave. They're just washing my hands. <laughs> that sounds like a good excuse, though. I couldn't do my homework. My dog was in the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's lovely because sometimes when you do have a dog in your life, you can get to the point where you take them for granted and you said, oh, no, I've got to go and do and walk the dog or, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, they do enrich our lives a lot. And we need to remember that, don't we? Yeah, we, we, we do. And, and that's partly why we have uh, the title uh, Thanksgiving for Pets, because, um, you know, obviously, especially here uh, in the U.S., Thanksgiving is a, is a very big holiday for us. And. We, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time preparing for it, you know, gathering with uh, friends and family. But it's interesting that we don't always uh, take the time to, to give thanks to our pets. And we thought that with Bark Night being a specific day and happening around uh, Thanksgiving, that it would be a nice tie-in and, and reminder that we should, we should uh, you know, thank our pets and, and, you know, take extra time to show our love uh, for them. Yeah, yeah. So what, what do you encourage people to do on Bark Night? Matthew, what do we do on Bark Night? We make uh, dog biscuits and like cookies in the shapes of dog biscuits. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, we read Bark Night, and at 9 o'clock, we uh, howl Bark Night. Yeah, we open at the same time, just like in the book. Yeah, that sounds fun. Um, now, um, somebody tell me about the illustrations in the book, because they are lovely. So how, who, who did the illustrations? Um, the illustrations were actually done uh, by an artist that we hired through the publishing company. Hmm. There were a couple of different artists that they had available, and um, several of them uh, took a shot at, at, um, at uh, kind of illustrating one aspect of the book, and it was clear that the one particular person, um, it was actually a, uh, um, a woman by the name of Erin, I'm sorry, Colleen, excuse me, missing up my Irish names here. <laughs> and, um, she just nailed it. Yeah. She, she just, I mean, the, the, the initial illustration was great. And then what happened is, although she obviously was the principal artist, we went from, uh, with the kids and with my wife, page by page, we had already mapped out what words would, would be on each page. And then we provided um, guidance. Through, we actually had a conference call with her. We provided guidance around what we thought each page should feature in terms of the artwork. And, uh, and she just ran with it. She did a great job. And um, we actually had very, very few pages were, were redone. Everything was, was pretty, pretty much spot on from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we worked closely with her, um, unfortunately, we never met her. Um, and, uh, and once we were finished with the book, our dealings with her ended. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, now, it's a great story, and the, the illustrations are lovely. So what kind of response have you had from people who've, who've sort of read the book? Well, the response has been uh, very fav- favorable. Uh, everyone who's read it um, seems to come away with a warm feeling and, and, a, and a, you know, a similar appreciation for uh, pets that we have featured in the book. Um, one of the things that, that we have found, I, a bunch of our friends happen to be school teachers, uh, elementary school, uh, level school teachers, hmm. and they have taken to reading the book to their class around the, the time of the holiday, around Bark Night, which is the Thanksgiving, um, you know, it's the November time frame, and the, uh, the response from the kids has been overwhelming. We've actually received um, letters written to us uh, from, from actual classes. They, they made it a, a class project to, to write about their dogs or their pets. And um, and so I would say the response has just been, you know, uniformly positive. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I've written anything and I get feedback, I really enjoy that. Um, so d- did that sort of um, not make it worthwhile for you because obviously you enjoyed the process of it, but did that really sort of bring home to you that other people were enjoying this as well? Absolutely. It's a nice recognition that um, our feeling that we thought we had a really terrific and special story um, is shared by others, and it kind of it kind of helps to reinforce and validate that yeah this I mean, this really is a, a story that resonates with people and and makes them feel good and uh, you know we, we've gotten we've gotten uh, feedback from <clears throat> from lots lots of uh, of people around the United States and around the world who have just um, you know uh, thanked us for for actually putting the book together yeah yeah. I, I, I do think that people appreciate a little reminder that, you know, their dogs and their pets are special and they need to sort of appreciate them. Um, do, do you guys have any more planned or, or do we think they're going to happen when they happen, sort of depending on what your dinner discussions are like? Well, it's a very good, good question. Now, um, you know, I, we did not set out to write a book. We did not set out to uh, make it a bestseller. Um, we, we knew we had a, a, a really uh, good story. We wanted to, uh, to write it down. And it turned out to be more or less a family project to just say, hey, you, know, you can take an idea from concept to production by just following you know, some, some steps and being focused and, and seeing it through. And, of course, we did that. So it was, it was great to have the end product, but it was great to go through the process. But since we've done that, um, you know, things happened you know, accidentally. You know, people have come upon it. And one of the things that we are in the process of, of doing is we are um, – there's an organization um, in the in the U.S. where um, children read books to dogs as a way to help promote literacy amongst amongst children. Hmm. They feel much more comfortable when when they're reading to a dog rather than say reading aloud in class. And so, what, one of the things that we're looking to do is to 
uh, engage with them and do a national uh, Bark uh, Night Reading Day where we will supply books to all the, all the chapters of this organization for free, uh, and they will just um, get together and, and take turns reading, having the kids reading uh, to their Bark Night to their dogs. Mm. That's something we're looking to do. And, and then there's other organizations around um, the U.S. And, and, and really the world where, um, like, I'll see a story written at, uh, let's say, that they're, they're going to be celebrating dogs um, for one particular reason or another. Um, I'll get in touch with them, and I'll just send them some books as a, uh, just a way to show support for them. Mm. And one of the other things we've done in the past is we've, uh, you know, there's the, uh, the blessing of the pets each year um, in, in, in our church and around, around the, the globe. Hmm. And one year we sent um, dozens of books to different uh, churches around the world, and uh, we got feedback from several that um, the book was read as part of the homily on that day. Hmm. So, so just different things. Um, some of it is more, more uh, coordinated than, than others, um, but uh, we're just kind of you know, having it out there and, and kind of seeing what comes our way. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, it's, isn't it funny, because from, from a chance beginning over a dinner conversation, it sounds like that book is doing an awful lot of good. You know, that's it, it, a very good point. It really is. And, um, and, and we would you know, certainly like to have more people know about Bark Night. You know, one of the things that we thought of is, is you know, if, if it makes us so happy and people we know so happy, imagine if Bark Night was sort of a, a sort of a holiday. Yeah. You know, a holiday. It's, it's, it's one thing that, that brings people together. It's, it's the relationship that they have with their pets. Yeah. You know, there are dog parks um, all around where we are, and it's amazing. You see people who do not know each other all of a sudden start striking up conversations and, and, uh, and, and just you know, making new friends when they bring their pet to, uh, to run at the dog park. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right, because whoever I've interviewed, you know, it very soon becomes just we're talking about dogs and, and that's our connection and, it, and you get quite relaxed very quickly. Yeah, it, it, really, it really is something. And so we, we've often thought, imagine, you know, the, uh, the friendships that could be made if there was a national uh, or, or, or a global holiday just for pets, where people would get together and, you know, share their stories, introduce their pets to one another, and then just generally, you know, expand their relationships. Yeah, I think that sounds a great idea. Um, tell me about what, what dogs or what pets do you guys have? Seven, what pets do we have? Um, well, we've had three dogs so far. They've all been great, but um, not perfect for us. Like the first one we had, he passed away, but he was in our family. We loved him. And then we had um, we have Lucy now. She's wonderful. She, her birthday was October 22nd, so she's like... She's a, well, yeah, in dog years, she's like three years old, but in human years, she's only at like half a year. Yeah. <laughs> um, a cat, her name is Pumpkin, and she's so cute. Um, she, we normally, we feed her, and she hangs around the house, but sometimes when we're doing yard work, she comes towards us, and we have to stop doing yard work, and then she's like asking for scratches, and it's funny. But when they, when Lucy... Most normally dogs chase cats, but when Lucy and Pumpkin Pumpkin are around, they just like they'll lick each other, and it's really cute. <laughs> it's lovely when you see that happening, isn't it, Kevin? We've got three dogs and three cats, and mostly they get along and they cuddle up, and, and that is lovely to see, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Meg, can I ask you? Yeah. Have you always had dogs in your life? I've always, always had a dog. Um, I think I got my first dog when I was seven, but I always wanted a dog before that. I can identify with that because I always wanted dogs, but I didn't get one till I was in my 30s. <laughs> so you, you know how great it is for kids to grow up with dogs. Absolutely. And I think the first dog we had actually found us at a family party. She just showed up um, and there was no way my parents... We, we could tell she had... Unfortunately, she tried to escape from wherever she was. She had been hurt and my parents decided there was no way they were going to try to find the owner because the dog was in such sad shape and we she was probably the best dog ever and she did she appreciated us so yeah. much 
And uh, that's probably the beginning of the thought. Um, you yeah. know, and we appreciate her. And clearly, as a family, you, you do love dogs, don't you? Oh, yeah. We can't, as, as a family, we can't go anywhere without, upon spotting a dog, commenting immediately on what he looks like, how cute he is, whether I'm trying to put his head out the window, you know. We're a very dog-focused family. Brilliant. Um, it's been lovely talking to you all. You, I, you sound a lovely family and you've written a great book and it's doing a lot of good. Um, where can people find out more about you on the internet? Sure. Um, we uh, can be reached through our website, barknight.com. We also have a Twitter account, which is at BarkNight. And uh, anyone interested um, in, uh, in buying the book, uh, if you go to our blog, we actually have uh, access to a 15% off coupon, which uh, you can use online um, at, uh, at Amazon. So um, we're, we're very much accessible and, and encourage people to, uh, to get a copy of the book and, and more importantly, to just you know, take time uh, once a year at least to, uh, to make a big deal and show thanks for their, their dogs and their pets. The McConnell family there. That was the first time I've interviewed a whole family in one go, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. We have links on the Dogcast Radio site to BarkNight.com and to the at BarkNight Twitter feed. And if your dog has inspired you to get creative, we'd love to hear from you. A dog has the soul of a philosopher. Plato. watching Keith Lemon's Lemonade on television on Saturday the 28th of April, you'd have seen a dog given as a competition prize. What's your reaction? Did you just think, ah, or do you know enough about dogs to understand what a disaster the incident was for dog welfare? Many watching had the latter reaction, and within minutes, social media had exploded with outrage. Twitter was awash with protesting comments and a Facebook page was created to coordinate objections which attracted 1,000 members in the first 24 hours. Complaints poured into Ofcom and ITV and a petition to change the law to make it illegal to give any animal as a prize in the UK was set up. The Kennel Club revealed that prior to filming they advised against the feature. Dogs Trust, Battersea Dogs and Cats Home and others issued statements of disapproval and the RSPCA is investigating the matter. So just why are feelings running so high? Objections are not simply focused on the actual pug puppy who was given away, although that dog was the result of an accidental mating, his parents had not been health tested, he was at ITV Studios at six weeks old, and he was in his new home at just seven weeks old, all of which is disappointing to say the least. ITV has claimed that home checks were carried out on the families competing to win a dog, although an advert for people to compete on the show was posted on the 16th of April and the show was filmed on the 20th of April, so arrangements must have been put in place with great haste. None of this was mentioned in the show, so the message that went out to watching millions was that it's okay to get a dog on a whim, dogs are inanimate objects that can be paraded around as prizes, and one dog is much the same as any other. This is an extremely dangerous message, particularly at the moment. The dog world in the UK is in a state of flux right now. It was only three years ago that the Kennel Club was rocked to its foundations by the documentary Pedigree Dogs Exposed. It's easy to forget the impact that programme had, but at the time the Kennel Club had to confirm that Crufts, their major dog show and the most prestigious dog show in the world, was still going ahead. However, the BBC dumped Crufts after 40 years of televising it. Pedigree Food pulled out as Crufts' main sponsor and the Kennel Club's reputation was at an all-time low. Unscrupulous breeders started advertising that their pups weren't Kennel Club registered, so they must be healthy. In fact, pedigree or not, the best chance you have of buying a healthy dog is to do your homework and buy from health-tested parents. Right now, the UK, particularly Wales, is riddled with puppy farms. Puppy farmers keep their dogs in appalling, cramped, dirty conditions, don't health test, don't bother to visit a vet, and sell puppies to unsuspecting members of the public who are setting themselves up for heartache and vet's bills. There is no such thing as a bargain puppy, so buyer beware and learn how to recognise a bad breeder. 
At a time when UK rescue shelters are overflowing with unwanted and abandoned dogs, hoodies use dogs as weapons, and dog attacks regularly make the headlines. It's clear that the dog world needs to take stock and work even harder to promote the right messages to the public. This is why Keith Lemons and ITV's thoughtless arrogance have provoked such disapproval because they come at a time when we have never needed responsible dog ownership more. A dog has one aim in life, to bestow his heart. J.R. Ackerley Dogs for the Disabled is a wonderful UK charity that trains and supplies dogs who fetch, carry, switch lights on and off, empty washing machines and assist their owners in countless other ways. If you'd like to help raise money to support the charity's work, you can do so really easily. May 21st to 27th is Big Dogs Breakfast Week. The charity is asking you to get together with friends, family or colleagues and have a meal or a snack and ask for donations which will help provide assistance dogs which change the life of the people they live with. You can find out more information at the Dogs for the Disabled website and on the Dogcast Radio blog. Don't forget that Dogcast Radio is now also available on YouTube. Simply go to YouTube and search for Dogcast Radio. Then relax and enjoy. Till next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident dog cast radio that's all one word dog cast radio by email you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. when contacting us by email if you have the facilities please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file that way we can include them directly in our program we can accept most formats for example wav mp3 all these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What kind of dog does a mad scientist have? A laboratory retriever.